Well, we're at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians. Two verses we'll look at this morning comprise one of the greatest doxologies you'll find in the scriptures. A doxology is a term that simply means a hymn of praise, usually in response to some great truth that has just been written or discussed, and that's certainly the case here. In Ephesians chapter 3, someone has said that doxology is the resting place of true theology. And what that means is if you understand rightly the truth concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel, then that should invoke in your heart a hymn of praise. And so let's read these two verses. You'll, you'll be familiar with them. You will hear these verses preached at weddings in anticipation of what the Lord will do with the new bride and the new groom. You might hear these verses preached in any number of settings topically, and that is just to take the verse off the page and to explain and declare the great truth that is there. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. I feel like I should just sit down. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us work our way through these verses. Our Father, we come this morning and Lord, I pray that you would give us greater ability to understand your power, your might, your willingness to work on our behalf. Lord, help us to be as willing and ready to sing a hymn of praise to you as Paul was as he considered how greatly you had worked in the life of the Ephesian church, in the life of Jew and Gentile, in the life of every individual believer. We ask for your help only toward the end that Christ would be magnified and exalted. So we ask it in his name. Amen. So I want to break this in three parts and talk about how this doxology is a most fitting conclusion to a tremendous prayer. That's where we find it at the end of the prayer that Paul prays in verses 14 through 19. So it is a fitting conclusion, but then this conclusion in doxology teaches us great things about the power and willingness of God. So that's the second thing we'll look at. And then lastly, we'll seek to make some application of these things. So you'll notice that the book of Ephesians divides itself neatly in half. At the end of chapter 3, what we call the indicative section of Ephesians comes to a close. Indicative meaning that Paul is telling Christians everything that the Lord has done to save them, everything that they are now in Jesus Christ, and it's all based upon his work that they have received by faith, and all of that is according to grace. Then in coming weeks, we'll turn the page and get into the 4th, 5th, and 6th chapters where Paul there begins to build by saying in those later chapters, now do this. 
based upon what God has done for you, you now go and live like this with great help, with great strength, with great grace extended to you. We call that section of Ephesians the imperative section, commands, things to do. But at the conclusion of this first section or indicative section of Ephesians, we find Paul praying that these realities that make up who the Christian really is in his inner man, in his spirit, would be known in increasing measure by individual believers as they themselves comprise the church. And as he begins to think of these things and pray these things, he ends this prayer in verse 19 by asking that the Lord would work in such ways in the life of believers that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul asks a lot that you and I, once dead in sin, may now be filled with the very fullness of God. Is this something God can do? Absolutely. That's why the doxology comes next. Now to him who is able. Able to do what? Fill you with all the fullness of God and so much more, if we can state it in that way. William Carey is a name you might recognize through church history. Many consider him to be the pioneer of what is now the foreign missionary movement. William Carey has a saying that I suppose is based upon the truth found here in verses 20 and 21. His saying was, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. The first of that saying, expect great things from God. I wonder how many of us living in this day and time are categorized by those who are expecting God to do great things. Or are we just biding our time until the Lord returns? We're living in a day and age with all that is going on. In this day and time, God is not limited in what he can do for his own glory. Do you believe that? Only one person in the whole room believes that God is not limited in this day and time in which we live to do whatever he wills or whatever he wants. Well, one is better than none. But I suspect that we all do. We all expect and we know that the Lord can but will he? We know that all ability is his. But then we're confronted by the reality of life outside the fellowship of the church. Outside the fellowship of believers. We're confronted with the reality of a world that hates Christ. Of a world that wants nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. And so we ask the question after we confess the truth that he is able, will he? Will he do this? Well, we're going to answer that question from Paul's words as we go throughout this, as we go throughout these uh, study of these two verses. But let's first look at it as a conclusion to a great prayer, a prayer for strength. This is what we looked at last week, verses 14. Through 19. If you were to summarize what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, it would be 
what is found there in the 16th verse, that you might be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. You need your inner man, your soul, your spirit to be strengthened because that is where the battle of Christianity rages. This is where the very seat of the war between the flesh and the spirit is being fought. This is why we need to be strengthened with all might by the Spirit of God. Can he do this? He can. Will he do this is the question. John Newton is a name you'll also recognize as the author of several hymns. Only a few of John Newton's hymns do we actually sing But he has written some tremendous hymns. The most famous, of course, being Amazing Grace. This is the portion of one of his hymns. He says, in referencing to these verses, he says, You are coming to a king, so large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Is this the way that you pray? You recognize that you were coming to a king and you can bring large petitions, you can ask much of him, knowing that he can bring these things to pass so long as they are in accordance with his will. We're saying that this is the conclusion to this great prayer of Paul, but really it's the conclusion of the first three chapters. And so I want to quickly go back and rehearse a few things that, has, that, that have gotten us to this point to where Paul would end this section with this great hymn of praise. We've asked the question, I've asked the question, will he? He can. Will he? Let me remind you, if you're a believer, he already has. He already has done great things for you. You can go all the way back to chapter 2. Look at those first three verses. We won't reread them. We spent so much time there in them. Those first three verses condemn every person under sin and living in an expression of that sin. Paul called it being dead in trespasses and sins. But when you get to the fourth verse, there is the intervention of God. And if you are converted this morning, if you've been given a new heart and you have faith in Jesus Christ, then it is certainly true of you that God has intervened in your life and has brought you to faith in Christ because he is rich in mercy. That's what the fourth verse says of chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. What's the response of your heart to that truth? It's got to be this, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Our response to the intervening grace of God must be in some form or fashion a hymn of praise that comes out of the very depth of our heart. That's the very personal application of this, but 
by the time we reach the end of the second chapter, you'll remember that God in Christ at Calvary through the shedding of his blood, through the breaking of his body, not only won redemption for individual Christians, he did something else. He tore down that wall of separation that separated Gentile from Jew. He completely removed it. So that now the apostle says that there is one person, one new person made out of the two. What is the response of the church of Jesus Christ, especially we as being Gentiles, as having been grafted in to Christ, to the gospel, that the response must be the same now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. But if you go even further back to the first chapter in those first verses, verses 3 through 14, which comprises one long sentence where the eternal purpose of God is made known. Before the foundation of the world, we are told there what God would do in and through Christ for his people. And yet he has the ability to bring it to pass. You see, it's one thing just to make a plan. It's another thing altogether to make that plan come to pass. And to do so with great precision. And just at the right time. How often do you read in Paul's writing where just at the right time God did this or God did that? All according to his plan. What's our response as we read that long sentence that begins this epistle that speaks of the eternal plan of God to accomplish the redemption of a people? What's our response? The same. Now to him be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. Yet there's another way I think we can consider these verses, and that is that this doxology or praise of Paul in response to these great things that the Spirit inspired him to write, in which he knew himself, that this is the Holy Spirit's seal on what has been written. You know from your study of the Old Testament or even New Testament times when a king or a ruler would make a decree and want that to be received as being from him, he would take his ring with his sign in it, he would press it into a seal of wax so that it would be authenticated. As I read this, verse 20 and 21 is the authentication of the Spirit of God upon the things Paul has written concerning the salvation of man the tearing down of the wall that separated the Gentile and the Jew, and the great strengthening of the inner man and filling with all the fullness of God, it's as if the Spirit of God says, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly what needs to be preached and made known now to him who is able to make it come to pass. So after considering it as a conclusion, to a great prayer, to the first three chapters of the epistle of the Ephesians. Let's think about what we are being taught in this prayer. Even though it is a hymn like any good hymn worth singing, whether it's a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song, which the fifth chapter of this book and also the third of Colossians says that the church, as we sing together, we are instructing one another. 
Any hymn, psalm, or spiritual song that is worth singing teaches, instructs. This one is no different. So we ask the question, what are we being taught through this great hymn of praise? Well, let's look at it this way. We're being taught that he is able to do all we ask. But more than that, we're being taught that he is able to do above all that we ask. But more than that, we are taught that he is able to do exceedingly above all we ask. But more than that, He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask. But more than that, we are taught that He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. You put all of that together and read it as it is on the page. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Paul, as he normally does when he's writing doxology, just throws proper grammar and writing out the window and he combines words that you don't find put together anywhere else in the Scripture. He, com- he combines superlatives exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Basically, Paul is telling us here and the Spirit of God is telling us here that God is not limited even by our renewed hearts or our minds. You see, there are limits to even what a renewed heart will ask for. And there are limits to what a renewed mind will even think to ask for. Paul is saying he is able to go so far exceedingly and abundantly above and over anything that you would ask or anything that you could ever even think. That is the greatness of God. All His holy will will come to pass. There is nothing in this world, nothing outside of this world, no power that is present in the world, no principality beneath the earth in this whole realm of spiritual warfare that in time we'll get to in the sixth chapter. There is nothing individually or combined together that can come and stand against anything that the Lord would have accomplished in this life. Nothing. Because He is able. And Scripture bears out over and over again that there is no obstacle that he cannot overcome, nothing that will limit his power. You think of the forces of nature, great as they are, and few things outside of the Word of God speak to us so clearly and plainly as the things we see in nature, right? The heavens are declaring the glory of God. But yet into nature... We see God over and over subdue the powers of nature to accomplish His purposes. In the Exodus, the waters of the Red Sea stood as a heap. Muddy ground became immediately dry, dry enough for all of the people of God to make their way across. That's just one example. 
as Joshua was fighting, the Lord made the sun stand still for a time, totally interrupting the power of nature that he himself had set in order. But then not just the power of nature, but the intellect and the power of man. You remember the wall of Jericho. Greatly constructed, greatly trusted in by those who were inside. And how does God instruct his people to overcome such an obstacle? Walk around it and blow a horn. And they obediently did just that. And what happened? The wall fell. When his children grew hungry, he dropped bread out of heaven. He made quail come into the camp. He brought Elijah food by a raven. He fed 5,000 or more people with a few loaves and a few fish. The scriptures are full over and over of how the Lord is limited by nothing. He is able to do more than we ask, to do more than we could even think. And we're told here in, by Paul in this that this is according to the power that works in us. This is something I don't fully understand as I ought and as I hope, and perhaps you're the same way. If you go all the way back to the 19th verse of chapter 1, we're told there that the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe is according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The greatest, most miraculous event that has ever happened on this planet, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of God behind that event, the power of Christ, as he said himself, I both have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it up again. The scriptures tell us that that same power of God is operative in us who believe. I wonder to what degree we believe that. That the power of God that raised Christ is the same power that is operative in me, Paul says, according to the power that works in us. If you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit of Christ has come into your life. He's come into your heart. He has taken up residence there. And He is empowering you to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to Him. You could not do so otherwise. You and I would be totally lost and inept in any ability to honor Christ if it were not for the power that accords to the resurrection of Christ working in us. But we're also taught something else here. In verse 21, after we are told that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, we are told that to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. We're being taught here that the glory of God in Christ is particularly manifested in the church of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to see it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it in verse 21. To him be glory where? In the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. I want to read you a quote by S.M. Ball. S.M. Ball has written a commentary on Ephesians that's this thick. I've profited from it so, so much as I can sit down and get in the right frame of mind and, and really try to stay with what he says. He's a brilliant mind, a brilliant intellect. But he writes this truth, I think, which we can all understand, referring to the glory of God in Christ being known in the church. Listen to what he says. He says, the glory is God's, but his radiant presence resides in the church alongside and through Christ Jesus. Paul is expressing the idea of God's dwelling with his people as his inaugurated new temple building. Now you think of the Old Testament era, the Old Testament period. It was in the tabernacle and then later more fully in the temple where God manifested his glory into what we call the Holy of Holies. And it was there particularly, nowhere else but there, where the glory of God was to be found. In the tabernacle and then later in the temple. What Paul is telling us here is that in this new covenant era, in this new covenant period of time, that the glory of God in Christ Jesus is manifested no longer in a tabernacle or in a physical temple, but in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, aren't you glad that you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ? And you can only say amen if you have by faith trusted in Christ's work for you, finished at Calvary. The glory is God's, but his presence resides in and through Christ in the church. Isn't that what Paul's already said back in the end of chapter 2? He says, you are being built together into a building, being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So now where does the Spirit of God in its greatest manifestation, where is the glory of Christ most greatly known? According to Paul, inspired of the Spirit, it resides in the church of Jesus Christ. But just so that we don't think this is something unique to Paul, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, notice Peter's language, as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Did you notice that Peter here uses temple language? He speaks of the spiritual house, the priesthood, and the offering of sacrifices. Peter is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. The church of, the, of Jesus Christ is being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit into a holy temple in the Lord. It's interesting that we could say that this is according 
to Scripture, a little-known minor prophet. Maybe it's been a while since you've read Zechariah. If you were to look at verses 10 and 11 of Zechariah chapter 2, I'm going to read them. After Israel is exiled, after they are taken away captive, and they're there, the godly are, are yearning and pining for the courts of the Lord. After they've been taken captive, the Lord tells them something in Zechariah chapter 2 and in verse 10. He says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. But notice verse 11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. I don't think it's a stretch to say at all that Paul is recognizing the fulfillment of this promise articulated by Zechariah to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus as he builds his church into this new temple of the Lord. He sees, Paul sees, the fullness of God's glory residing with his new covenant united people that now consists of both believing Jews and Gentiles as a new temple building. And the greatest thing about this is that that glory will never leave because it's Christ's glory. And he has said to his people, I will never leave nor forsake you. You know, there is an interesting account you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the whole account of Eli and his wicked sons. Well, his daughter-in-law, one of his daughters-in-law, had a child, and then she died shortly thereafter, but not before naming the child. Do you remember what she named him? After the ark of God had been stolen away, she named him Ichabod. Do you remember what the name Ichabod means? It means the glory has departed. Here is the, one of the greatest truths that I think can be expressed from this doxology of praise. The true church of Jesus Christ will never ever have pronounced over it Ichabod. The glory will never depart. The glory is here to stay because Christ is here to stay. He will build His church. Nothing can prevent it. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ building his church. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Notice how far this extends to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So after having seen it as a conclusion to a great prayer, and after having seen it as a response to the great truths contained in chapters 1 through 3, after seeing it in its context, I want to broaden that out just a bit and 
make application of it along two lines. The first, personally, and the second, corporately. Personally, how do you apply these great truths? Well, first of all, it's a reminder to you and a declaration to you of God's ability. His arm has not been shortened. That's the Old Testament's way, the Psalms' way of saying that the Lord's power has not diminished, it has not been decreased. He is able to do today everything that He did yesterday and so much more than we would even ask or even begin to think. And then it gets really close to home when you think about the ability of God. And I want to say it this way. If He has saved you, He can save anyone. If He has saved me, He can save anyone. There is none beyond His power to save. Don't stop praying for your lost family member. Don't stop praying for your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, whomever it may be, your co-worker that is so desperately lost in sin. Don't stop praying for them because if God saved you, He can save them. They are no less lost in the dark deadness of sin than you and I were. They may be living it out to a fuller degree or to a lesser degree. The consequences of their sin may be great or may not be that great at all. But there is all ability in God to save any of His creation if He wills it. Keep praying. Don't give up. The Lord seems to be pleased with persistent prayer. Be like the widow that came to the judge just wearing Him out. Until he relented. Persist in prayer. But don't persist. Without hope. But persist in hope. That he is able to do exceedingly. Abundantly. Above. All that you ask. But also you can consider this. In your own life, personally, there is no temptation He cannot empower you to overcome. Nothing. Do you believe that? Nothing. There is no sin that cannot be put off or mortified with His help. None. And you might say, well, I've been ensnared in this sin for decades. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. There is no obstacle too great to keep His eternal purposes from coming to pass. No obstacle. So you see how this doxology itself leads us to doxology, right? We're considering these things that are, that are praise to God, and even as we consider them, there is praise welling up in our own hearts because of what Christ has done and will do and can do. 
There is nothing in the scriptures, no expectation in the scriptures of a believer that cannot come to pass in your life as the Lord dispenses grace and help to you by his spirit. There simply just isn't anything. I don't believe there is any expectation of a believer in the scripture that cannot be accomplished by the power of the spirit. What I'm trying to say is I don't believe that the Lord dangles carrots in front of us that we can't capture by grace. So if those things represent the personal application, what might be the corporate application? And by corporate, I'm referring to the church. Why do we say corporate? Not to put in our minds some you know, business form, corporation, but just in reference to, you know, a corpse is a body, right? So corporate is body life, the body of the church. So corporately, first we understand that Christ will build His church. And let's shrink that down. Christ will build His church here. All of you present are examples of that. Interesting fact. Six years ago, last week, to the day, July 23rd, I came back here as the pastor of this church. Do you know how many people who are here presently this morning were here six years ago? Three not counting my family, three. Two here, one there. Everyone else represents the Lord building His church as He will, when He will, with the people He will. Not that I've ever doubted or that you have ever doubted, but I'm as convinced as ever the Lord will build His church. And in His church, unlike any other place known, He will manifest His glory. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. No power of hell can prevent it. And let me remind you, James tells us, we have not because we ask not. When is the last time we prayed, me, you, individually or together prayed for the Lord to build a vibrant, healthy, Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, word-based church in this community for His own glory? You and I know that there are others whom the Lord could bring in, maybe He will bring in, But is it owing to the fact that we just haven't asked? That we're just content as things are? We're we're, we're fine to just roll the way we're rolling? I think there should be a, a, a holy unrest in the people of God. If we say we believe what the Scripture says, and the Scripture says clearly and plainly, those outside of Christ will perish in their sin and will be immediately upon their death or the return of Christ ushered into a place of eternal torment. 
If we really believe that, then we should be praying earnestly for the Lord to bring more into the pale of His church. And no, I don't believe that this church is the only true church. Don't label me as that. There are other true churches in this community, in this town, and we can pray that the Lord would bring them in. But I think what Paul has in mind here in this verse, I do think because of the context of the larger epistle to the Ephesians, that there is an aspect of the local church being expressed here in this phrase, to him be glory in the church. I don't think we fully realize the beauty of the bride of Christ being part of the body of Christ. Occasionally, I'll run across someone who will say something like this to me, and it's well-intentioned, no doubt. There's a shred of truth in it, no doubt. But someone will say something like, I am the church. Where I go, the church goes. How would you respond to that? The element of truth in that saying is that, yes, you represent a part of the church. The church is comprised of individual believers, but by the very definition of the word, the very definition of the word church, go study it. It's an assembly of those that have been called out of the world unto Christ. So no, it's not true in its fullest sense that you are the church. And please understand what I'm about to say in the right way. God, Christ, does not have a person. He has a people. It's true. Individual Christians are saved. No doubt. It's true that the church is made up of individual Christians. But what you find in the scriptures is that God has a people. Christ has a bride. Christ has a body comprised of individual believers that have been brought in. Is it any wonder why it's within the church of Jesus Christ that his glory is most greatly manifested? Could it be so because in the church of Jesus Christ there are numerous dozens, hundreds, thousands of trophies of grace? You realize that's what you are if you're a Christian? And you have to understand that phrase rightly, I know, but you are a trophy of the grace of Christ. You're on display of what He has done for you. He's brought you out of sin unto Himself, made you a new person, and placed you in a group of people with a common confession. And why is it anyway that individual Christians need the church? You think of it this way. The church is like sandpaper. It is the most sanctifying tool 
that Christ uses in your life outside of your immediate family. And why do I call it sandpaper? Because there are people there who are going to rub you wrong. They're going to sin against you. You're going to sin against them. You're going to have to ask forgiveness. They're going to ask your forgiveness. The Lord is going to use the people of God to show you your weaknesses and at the same time to build you up in strength. That's why Paul can say, to him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So take this doxology and apply it to your life by the Spirit, under the governance of the Word, however you like. You can't even begin to think or ask what the Lord is able to do in your life. Young people, this applies to you. Right now you have thoughts racing through your head of what you want to do, what you want to be, how you want the Lord to bless you. Just know this, you're not even thinking on par with what He is able to do in and for you. You're not even asking. Here is the, the wonder of grace that He gives what we don't even know to ask and what we don't even know to think. Yet He gives it anyway because He's good, because He's gracious, because He's kind, because He is the, the embodiment of love. All of those things are true. But I can't conclude without saying this. All of those things being true, He is just. And by the very fact that He is just, He will by no means clear the guilty. Verses Steve read earlier. If you were to know anything of this ability and blessing of Christ, you must be Christ's. You must come with the ability that He gives by grace through faith, repenting of your sin, confessing Him to be both Lord and Christ, and He will save you. He will save you. Really the only question left to ask is will you come to Christ? And by coming to Christ, I don't mean anything of, of bodily movement. Going anywhere is not coming to Christ. But by faith, if you run to Him, He will receive you. And you'll be a new creature. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great doxology in these two verses and Lord we're, we're thankful we're humbled to even be able to think of your greatness your might your strength your ability and power to accomplish anything you please in our lives in the life of this church in the life of your larger church 
Lord, we're humbled to be able to know and to understand that there is nothing that puts limit upon you. So, Father, we pray and we ask that you would save the lost, save those that don't even know they're lost, they don't know to ask, they don't know to think, but that you would intervene in mercy. Bring them to yourself, show them the beauty of Christ and how he is the answer and remedy for all that is wrong, personally, in the world in general. The gospel of Christ is the only remedy. Lord, I pray you would use these verses in our lives for good, that we might call them to mind often, that we might meditate upon the truth of them, to know that our God is able. Lord, help us to persist in prayer, in hope. And Lord, help us to see, even if it's just a glimpse, of the glory of the church of Jesus Christ being built together as living stones into this holy dwelling place of God. May Jesus Christ be praised among us. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen.